Greetings and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll have a roundup of the news and planets and then talk about the upcoming Perseid meteor shower. If you're into astronomy, you'll be aware that the Perseid meteor shower reaches its maximum in the early hours of August 12th. I'll talk about this some more in just a few minutes, but if you're unfamiliar with the shower, I wanted to let you know how you can see these shooting stars for yourself. The Perseids are active from mid-July to late August, and under ideal conditions, they can produce up to 100 meteors an hour. But what are the ideal conditions? Firstly, you'd need to be under very clear, dark skies. In other words, far away from the lights of any nearby towns or cities. You'll also need a clear, moonless night. Since the moon brightens the sky in much the same way the sun does, its light can drown out the fainter shooting stars. Lastly, the point from which the meteors seem to originate, called the radiant, would need to be directly overhead. The Perseids originate from the constellation of, wait for it, Perseus. In other words, to see 100 Perseid meteors an hour, you'd need to be under pitch black conditions on a moonless night and with the constellation of Perseus directly above your head. So what are the chances of that happening this year? Well, your observing location is down to you, but if you live in or near a town or city, you'll see a lot less meteors than if you're out in the country. The moon, unfortunately, is just past last quarter on the morning of the 12th. This is far from ideal, as it will rise a little after midnight and will be above the horizon all morning. It's still better than if the moon were fuller, but on that particular date, the moon appears close to the shower's radiance. Realistically then, you're not going to see 100 an hour, and it's hard to estimate how many might be visible. Your best bet is to start looking from around 10pm onwards. You'll probably have 2 or 3 decent hours before the moon starts to become a nuisance at around 1am. The shower's radiance will be over the north-northeastern horizon, but look either towards the north or towards the northeast. Why? Because the meteors won't immediately appear from the radiant, but will first become visible some 30 degrees away from it. It's possible to see a meteor in other parts of the sky, but if you trace its path back, it should originate from the radiant. If it doesn't, then it was probably a random shooting star. While this year's shower isn't ideal, it's not terrible. If you can't see the show, there's the Leonids to look forward to in November, and next year's Perseids take place during a new moon. But can you really wait that long? For the first time, astronomers have watched as a supermassive black hole's own corona, the ultra-bright billion-degree ring of high-energy particles that encircles a black hole's event horizon, was abruptly destroyed. The cause of this dramatic transformation is unclear, though the researchers guessed that the source of the calamity may have been a star caught in the black hole's gravitational pull. Like a pebble tossed into a gearbox, the star may have ricocheted through the black hole's disk of swirling material, causing everything in the vicinity, including the corona's high-energy particles, to suddenly plummet into the black hole. The result, as the astronomers observed, was a surprising drop in the black hole's brightness by a factor of 10,000 in just under a year. Following the corona's disappearance, astronomers continued to watch as the black hole began to slowly pull together material from its outer edges to reform its swirling accretion disk, which in turn began to spin up high-energy X-rays close to the black hole's event horizon. In this way, 
In just a few months, the black hole was able to generate a new corona, almost back to its original luminosity. At least twice in Earth's history, nearly the entire planet was encased in a sheet of snow and ice. These dramatic snowball Earth events occurred in quick su succession somewhere around 700 million years ago and evidence suggests that the consecutive global ice ages set the stage for the subsequent explosion of complex multicellular life on Earth. Scientists have considered multiple scenarios for what may have tipped the planet into each ice age. While no single driving process has been identified, it's assumed that whatever triggered the temporary freeze-overs must have done so in a way that pushed the planet past a critical threshold, such as reducing incoming sunlight or atmospheric carbon dioxide to levels low enough to set off a global expansion of ice. But scientists now say that snowball Earths were likely the product of rate-induced glaciations. That is, they found the Earth can be tipped into a global ice age when the level of solar radiation it receives changes quickly over a geologically short period of time. The amount of solar radiation doesn't have to drop to a particular threshold point. As long as the decrease in incoming sunlight occurs faster than a critical rate, a temporary glaciation or snowball Earth will follow. Ever since astronomers witnessed one of the brightest explosions of a star in a night sky, creating supernova 1987A, or SN1987A, they have been searching for a compact object that should have formed in the leftovers from the blast. Because particles known as neutrinos were detected on Earth on the day of the explosion, which was February 23, 1987, astronomers expected that a neutron star had formed in the collapsed center of the star. But when scientists could not find any evidence for that star, they started to wonder whether it subsequently collapsed into a black hole instead. For decades, the scientific community has been eagerly awaiting a signal from this object that has been hiding behind a very thick cloud of dust. Recent observations have provided the first indication of the missing neutron star after the explosion. Extremely high resolution images revealed a hot blob in the dusty core of supernova 1987A which is brighter than its surroundings and matches the suspected location of the neutron star. Our solar system has one habitable planet, the Earth. A new study shows other stars could have as many as seven Earth-like planets in the absence of a gas giant like Jupiter. The search for life in outer space is typically focused on what scientists call the habitable zone, which is the area around a star in which an orbiting planet could have liquid water oceans, a condition for life as we know it. The study focused on a nearby solar system called TRAPPIST-1, which has three Earth-like planets in its habitable zone. The researchers created a model system in which they simulated planets of various sizes orbiting their stars. An algorithm accounted for gravitational forces and helped test how the planets interacted with each other over millions of years. They found it is possible for some stars to support as many as seven, and that a star like our Sun could potentially support six planets with liquid water. Lastly, NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance rover mission is on its way to the Red Planet to search for signs of ancient life and collect samples to send back to Earth. Humanity's most sophisticated rover launched with the Ingenuity Mars helicopter at 7.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Thursday morning, on a United Launch Alliance or ULA Atlas V rocket from Space Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. The Atlas V's Centaur upper stage initially placed the Mars 2020 spacecraft into a parking orbit around the Earth. 
The engine fired for a second time and the spacecraft separated from the Centaur as planned. Navigation data indicate the spacecraft is perfectly on course to Mars. Jupiter and Saturn continue to dominate the evening sky, with both planets being about 20 degrees above the horizon an hour after sunset. Jupiter is a brilliant magnitude minus 2.7, far brighter than any star in the sky. As such, it will be unmissable in the southeast before midnight. It's beginning to shrink a little in apparent diameter, but at 47 arc seconds across, it's still a fine sight through a telescope. Saturn appears to Jupiter's left, but is noticeably fainter. It's now magnitude 0.2, which is roughly the same brightness as Vega. That star appears high above the eastern horizon and shines through a brilliant white light. Compare that to Saturn's pale yellow. Neptune is the next planet over the horizon. It's still a month away from our position, but should be well placed for observation from around midnight. By that time, Mars will be low over the eastern horizon, but if you can wait until around 3am, the red planet will be dominating the southeastern sky. It's now moving among the stars of Pisces, with no bright stars nearby. Uranus rises about half an hour after Mars, and is just over the border in Aries. It's at the limit of naked eye visibility, and, like Mars, there are no bright stars nearby. Like Jupiter and Saturn, Mars and Uranus both reach opposition in the same month, with both planets reaching their best in October. The two will appear within the same binocular field of view in late January. Venus spends the first half of the month to the north and northeast of Orion. It starts near Zeta Tauri, briefly moves through Orion from the 4th to the 11th, and then spends the re remainder of the month in Gemini. You can catch it over the eastern horizon from about two and a half hours before sunrise. If you're lucky, you might be able to spot Mercury in the glow of the pre-dawn twilight, but it's now sinking towards the sun, so you'll need to be quick. Try your luck at about 20 minutes before sunrise. The planet will be about 10 degrees over the eastern horizon on the 1st, but that altitude will halve by the 5th. Lastly, the moon is full on the 3rd and reaches last quarter on the 11th. Look for it between Jupiter and Saturn on the evening of the 1st, and then very close to Mars on the morning of the 9th. A crescent moon then appears to the upper left of Venus in the pre-dawn twilight of the 15th. Everyone loves a shooting star, right? Kids always seem to get excited when one suddenly streaks across the heavens, apparently from out of nowhere. And they're not alone, as adults will do the same. Or is it just me? Living in the suburbs of Los Angeles, I don't get to see as many as I used to. Just last week I was lucky enough to see one, for the first time in I don't know how long. Did I make a wish? Well, that would be telling. Suffice it to say, I see a shooting star so infrequently now that I wish I saw them more often. I'll get my chance, along with the rest of the world, on the evening of August the 11th. That's when the Perseids reach their maximum. This meteor shower is the celestial equivalent of Old Faithful, and it can always be relied upon to put on a good show. But what is a meteor anyway? You might think they're chunks of rock hurtling through the sky, and while that's not technically inaccurate, it's not quite entirely true either. The reality is that a shooting star is no bigger than a grain of sand or an apple seed. They burn so brightly because of the speed at which they're entering the Earth's atmosphere. Incidentally, here's another one of my astronomical pet peeves. You've probably seen TV shows or movies where somebody says something about a meteor striking the Earth and it being the end of the world as we know it. You might even be aware of that cheesy old disaster movie from the 1970s starring Sean Connery and called, wait for it, 
Meteor. Well, it's not a meteor. A meteor burns up in the atmosphere. A meteorite, on the other hand, actually reaches the ground. Big difference. Okay, I know that it will cause many people to roll their eyes at the semantics, which is why I typically keep this pet peeve to myself. As my wife says, do you really want to die on this hill? It irks me all the same. As if that wasn't enough to earn my uber nerd merit badge, I have to say the Perseids hold a special place in my heart. Many moons ago, when I was a kid back home in England, I was a member of the Luton Astronomical Society. Every year, at around the time of the Perseids, the President and Mr. David Early would host a starbecue party at his house. That's right, a starbecue. So we'd all go along, eat burgers and hot dogs, swat at the insects and wait for the sky to get dark. Once night fell and the stars were out, we'd stare at them for a while with two telescopes I could only dream of owning. I was about 12 at the time. My parents used to drive me there, stay for a burger or two, and then lead me to my own nerdiness. It was at one of these star parties that I first saw the planet Neptune. The society had built its own 12-inch Dobsonian telescope, and while I can't remember observing much else through it, I certainly remember Neptune. It appeared as a tiny, sapphire-blue disk, quite unlike any of the stars that surrounded it. So we'd wait until about midnight, and then the telescopes would slowly be stowed away and we'd sit in chairs and recliners and simply stare at the stars. We would stare towards the east and wait patiently for the Perseids. Someone would keep track of any that we saw, and from David's rural location we saw quite a few. At their best, under ideal conditions, the Perseids can produce up to 100 meteors an hour. They appear to originate from the constellation of Perseus, which doesn't rise until the early hours of the 12th. You might see some on the evening of the 11th, but you're likely to see more after midnight. Realistically, from a dark location, you'll probably see something like 50 to 70 an hour. While obviously less than 100, that's still about one a minute. They're reasonably bright and are pretty fast. Blink and you could quite literally miss it. Every year, when the Perseids come around, I think of David and his starbecue, and I remember those nights well, and with fondness. As an adult, I've wanted to host a starbecue of my own, but even when I lived under the semi-rural skies of Oklahoma, it somehow never happened. It won't happen this year either, partly because I don't have a house or a yard to have a starbecue in, but also because, well, COVID. Oh well. My wife and I are house hunting now, so maybe it'll happen next year. And this year? I'll look, I'll stare, and if I catch a falling star, I might just make a wish and put it in my pocket. Here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. From which comet does the Percy Meteor Shower originate? Is it A. Comet Neowise? Is it B. Comet Hale-Bopp? C. Comet Swift-Tuttle? Or D. Comet Halley? As always, I'll give you the answer in just a few moments. The answer to the trivia question is C, Comet Swift-Tuttle. As the comet orbits the Sun, it leaves behind a trail of dust particles. When the Earth moves through the trail, a meteor shower occurs. And that's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, 
please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple, and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon dash us in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon dash uk in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. And don't forget to come join the Stars and Stuff Facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you.